Specialty Stories, session number 24. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host for today and every day. Today, I have an awesome guest, our first New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Judy Melanick. Now, Dr. Melanick is a forensic pathologist, and she documented her journey through her fellowship training in a book called Working Stiff, which you can find at your favorite bookstore. And we're going to talk all about forensic pathology and how to explore it if you're interested in it. My name is Dr. Judy Melanek. I'm a forensic pathologist. And as a forensic pathologist, are you in an academic setting or community setting or are there uh, academic forensic pathologists, I guess? There are academic forensic pathologists. Um, I do do some academic work. I'm affiliated with uh, UC Davis currently as a research associate. So I have students and residents. The students tend to be forensic science students from their uh, master's program and their undergraduate program come and shadow me at my job, but I'm not uh, currently uh, on staff at any uh, academic institution. This is just as an uh, affiliate or associate status. And most forensic pathology jobs tend to be for government agencies, either a coroner or a medical examiner's office, and any academic affiliation tends to be in the clinical instructor status, teaching residents, medical students, things like that. Okay. And how long have you been practicing as a forensic pathologist? So I did my fellowship in forensic pathology from 2001 to 2002, and then I did a fellowship in neuropathology from 2002 to 2003. But 2001 was really when I started uh, working as a forensic pathologist, because even during fellowship, you're, you get paid, you're doing autopsies, you're part of a coroner or medical examiner's office. I was working for the New York City medical examiner. So given that we're in 2017 now, it's been about 16 years. Okay. I would assume that most kids, when they when they say they want to be a doctor when they grow up, don't think about forensic pathology as their goal. When did you know you wanted to be a forensic pathologist? I figured it out later than most because I wasn't really exposed to it as a specialty in medical school. And I, this is something we can further discuss or explore because I think that that's a real failing in our medical education, that pathology is relegated to second-year academic discourse. And you, you, know, you get it in your classroom and you get exposed to the pathologist in second year of medical school, but there is no required pathology rotation in medical school like there is for internal medicine or uh, surgery, general surgery, um, that it's something that people have to discover on their own. So for me, I did, I was exposed to pathology in second year medical school, just like all medical students. And then they offered this post-sophomore fellowship in pathology, which is an extra year that you can take in medical school between second and third year and work in the pathology department, just like a resident um, and get paid. But you're not a resident, you're not an MD yet, and it's an opportunity for them to expose people to pathology on a much more hands-on level. So I did this post-sophomore fellowship in pathology because I had wanted to actually take a gap year 
between college and med school, but I got in off the waiting list and I was afraid that I would lose my spot if <laughs> I tried to defer. So this was an opportunity to have kind of a break, but still be doing medicine and still working at the same hospital that, I'm, that I was training at. And so I loved my post-sophomore fellowship in pathology. I was exposed to multiple different rotations in pathology, including the blood bank, autopsy, surgical pathology. And during that time, I was allowed to do research and I actually decided to do research with the liver transplant team. And that's when I fell in love with surgery and decided I want to be a surgeon. So everybody in pathology was telling me, no, you should be a pathologist. And I would say, no, I want to be a surgeon. And I actually matched in surgery. When I finished medical school, I went to a general surgery residency. I lasted about six months <laughs> until I just collapsed from exhaustion <laughs> and decided that I wanted to be a pathologist. And all of the people who I was exposed to in my uh, mid-medical school year who was trying to convince me to go into pathology were absolutely right. And it was a much <laughs> better fit for me personally and professionally. So I, I switched back to pathology uh, they, because I had done a good job, I guess, <laughs> when, I was, uh, um, when I was a post-sophomore fellow. They had saved me a spot outside the match. And so when I quit surgery, I called up the pathology department. They said, we have a spot for you just starting in July. So I started in July, and it was the best decision I ever made. And I'm still forever grateful to Dr. Liz Wagar at the UCLA Medical School and Pathology Department for saving me a spot. I, I wouldn't be a pathologist if it wasn't for her. That's an interesting little twist there. I, I want to dig yeah. more into that in a minute. But this post-second year fellowship, is that something through the Pathology Association, like the National Pathology Association, or was that just something that your school had? Um, not all schools have it. It's sponsored through ACGME and the American Board of Pathology. So the organizations that accredit um, pathology residency programs allow for this, that you can do a, a year of pathology while you're still in medical school and it counts towards your residency. That existed when I was in medical school. That was, you know, we're talking over 15 years ago now. I don't know if it still exists. It was a wonderful program at the time. Of the six post-sophomore fellows, they had my year three ended up going into pathology. So I think it definitely pre-selects for people who are interested in the field, but it also cements their interests. Yeah, it's, it sounds like maybe that's a, an easy way to get people interested in it. Like, come hang out with us for a year. Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, pathology is very easy to recruit for once you're exposed to it. Um, it's such a wonderful field. It's so intellectually stimulating. The people are really nice. Um, it tends to have pretty decent work hours. It's not as uh, physically or emotionally grueling as some of the other specialties can be especially surgery. Um, so I, I think it's easy to recruit, but the problem is, is like I said, it's not a required rotation in medical school. Yeah. So a lot of students don't, it's not even on their radar. It's not something they think about. And as a result, we really have a problem there. I mean, as for pathologists, hospital pathologists, I don't know what the overall numbers are, but for forensic pathologists, we only have about 700 or so uh, board certified forensic pathologists practicing in the United States. It's about half of what we need for the demand. And wow. there are job openings that I see like languishing open sometimes for months and even years because there's just not enough uh, forensic pathologists to fill. So I highly recommend the field for medical students to consider in terms of job security and opportunities. Yeah. Interesting. So let's, let's talk about what it is that drew you into forensic pathology. So you were exposed to pathology and then there's this extra caveat of forensic pathology, what you're doing, what, what was it that drew you into it above and beyond, obviously, originally matching into surgery? 
Surgery was exciting to me because it's hands-on and because you get to fix things. I'm a very practical person. I like the, um, the hands-on approach. I like to be able to have answers for people and fix things. And so that's where it was attractive. Where surgery was unattractive was the lifestyle. It was just too exhausting. Every other night on call, watching my attendings you know, cycle through multiple marriages and being there late at night at all hours, um, definitely sacrificing their family times and their own mental health um, in exchange for this career, which really, in all honesty, is unnecessary. It's a, it's a financial burden and it's a cultural problem in the field. I think that you don't need to train surgeons this way. There are some more reasonable programs in general surgeries than the one that I happen to be in. I happen to be in a very uh, malignant program, as they call it. Um, but that said, what's nice about uh, pathology is that the hours are reasonable and I was drawn to it because I had that exposure in medical school, but I didn't have the passion for it that I had for surgery. Um, I felt disconnected from patients. I felt like I wasn't being a real doctor. And people do criticize that, oh, you know, you're not a real doctor being a pathologist, which, of course, is BS. It's not true. You're, you need to know sometimes more medicine than the clinicians. Um, but I, I felt disconnected from patient care. I felt disconnected from the action and excitement that surgery had until I did my forensic pathology rotation at the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. So when I was a resident in pathology, you do rotations in different fields. And I went to the New York City ME's office for um, a rotation, a one-month rotation, I think it was September or October. And I totally fell in love with it. being able to go to crime scenes, being able to testify in court, uh, interact with police officers, with family members of those who had died. I, I finally got that variety and excitement that I was missing. Interesting. So it was, it was the other interactions outside of just the pathology work that kind of filled the void for you. Actually, that is the pathology work. So one thing that people don't understand about forensic pathology is that you're not just in a lab um, doing autopsies and looking at microscopic slides all day. You do a lot of field work, going out to scenes. You do a lot of work interacting with families on the phone. You testify in court at least once a month. That's about average for me. Um, and you interact with lawyers trying to explain the science to them. So you're really, you're built in as an academic and a teacher, even though you're not officially in an academic environment. I find myself educating family members about the disease process that killed their loved ones over the phone. I find myself teaching juries about science so that they can make a good decision about guilt or innocence or about uh, civil liability. So I am still a teacher. It's just not in a formal academic setting. Okay. Very interesting. What what sorts of traits do you think lead to being a good forensic pathologist? I think that it helps to be curious. You have to be the kind of person who, when something doesn't make sense or sets off your BS meter, that you go, I need to dig into that some more. Like, I need to look that up. It's not that I'm going to put it aside and move on. Because a lot of medical specialties, you're not going to have all the answers and you just have to take the best path po forward given the limitations of your time and the limitations of uh, financial resources where you are. Um, but in forensics, you have time. There, you know, there's an expression in forensics and it's kind of tongue in cheek. They'll still be dead tomorrow. On the plus side, that means that you can work on a case the next day. You don't have to rush it, which is one of the pluses of the lifestyle aspect. But the other aspect of they'll still be dead tomorrow is 
you can put this off 24 hours and think about it. You can look up another article. You can uh, contact your colleagues and wait. There's, there's no rush in most cases for coming up with a conclusion. It's more important that it be rigorous, accurate, and defensible. Talk about a typical day for you in, a, in your forensic pathology job. So where I'm at right now is I work three days a week at the Alameda County Sheriff Coroner's office, and I fill in sometimes on Mondays and Tuesdays if other people are sick or on vacation. But my typical day when I work there is I wake up at around six o'clock in the morning, 6.30, and I get a text usually from my boss who tells me how many cases there are. And I will uh, then get my kids off to school (laughs) if I need to, and then drive over to Alameda County, which is about a 40-minute commute for me. I get in around 8.40, and then I'm in the morgue by 9 o'clock. Between 8.40 and 9, those 20 minutes or so, we review the cases, the the paperwork that's been generated by death investigators from the office, their deputy coroners, and they're the ones who went out to the scene and collected the dead body, and they have a, a clinical summary about what happened to the deceased, whether uh, they were ill, whether they were drug abusing, when they were last seen alive, when they were found, how they were found, the condition of the body, all that is in the report. We review the reports and then split them up amongst ourselves. In my current office, there's one chief forensic pathologist and four assistants who stagger their schedule so that usually there's two or three of us on at a given time. And then we go in the morgue from about nine to noon doing the autopsies. A typical autopsy takes about an hour, um, hour and a half at the most if it's a you know homicide case. Um, some t- there are really complex cases that can take multiple days where I'll do you know two hours one day and two or three hours another day, splitting them up over several days. Um, but the majority of cases I can be done in about an hour, an hour and a half. And then I go back to my desk. I dictate. I usually eat lunch um, either with colleagues or at my desk. Sometimes I eat out. It depends on the day and how busy it is. And then in the afternoon, I do paperwork, uh, field phone calls, uh, talk to lawyers, and then I also do my consult work. So in addition to working for the Alameda County Sheriff Coroner's Office, I'm also an independent forensic uh, consultant, and I can get hired by, usually it's attorneys, but sometimes it's family members, to do a second autopsy or give an opinion in a case of uh, wrongful death, whether it's civil or criminal cases. For criminal cases, it's usually for the defense, and civil cases, it's either plaintiff or defense. I'll look at paperwork, reports, and then give them my opinion, and sometimes I get called to testify for court. For the the bodies that you're doing autopsies on, what what would be maybe the the most common thing that they're in uh, that that they've died from that you're doing an autopsy for? It's a mix. I would say that um, to give you kind of a ballpark, I, about twenty percent of my cases are homicides, ten to twenty percent. Um, there, you know, which is disproportionate compared to what you see on television. Of course, in television, they're all homicides, right? Um, but only about 10 to 20% of my cases. Then the remaining 80% is a mixture of natural deaths, uh, people who are elderly or even young, but have some sort of natural disease, but haven't seen a doctor. So they died at home or they died um, en route to the hospital or they died in the street. And we don't know why they died, but I, when I do the autopsy, I find natural disease, heart disease is the most common 
Uh, lung disease from smoking is also really common. Uh, complications of obesity are common on the natural spectrum. And then um, another you know, equal percentage of natural uh, is also accidents, and those tend to be predominantly motor vehicle fatalities and overdoses. So uh, they, those can make it to the hospital and even survive for a period of time, but then they'll still come to our office because any case that is sudden, unnatural, or violent gets evaluated by the medical examiner. And then there's a smaller percentage that are suicides. So that, that kind of gives you the overview of the whole spectrum. So I would say about 20% homicides, 80% split up uh, pretty evenly between natural accident and suicide. Okay. What does the call schedule look like for you? You'd mentioned that they'll, be st- they'll still be dead tomorrow. Does that mean you don't right. have to go in often at night? In my current position, I'm a contract pathologist, so I don't have call at all, which is lovely. Uh, The only person on call is the chief forensic pathologist. And by my estimation, he gets called out to scenes maybe once or twice a month at the most. Um, The previous job that I held at the San Francisco Medical Examiner's Office, uh, there were four of us who split up call. So you'd be call for one week, you'd be on call for one week at a time, which means call just means that you get called out at night to crime scenes. Um, Again, I'd get called out maybe once a month. So I'd be on call for one week out of the month. And then usually it would be unusual for me to get called up, called out twice in the same week. Usually it'd be once a week. I think most people, when they hear being called out to a scene, they they think of CSI or Bones or even Dr. House snooping through cupboards looking at things. What what sort of things are you doing on a crime scene or at a crime scene? It really depends on the case. Typically, when I was in San Francisco, we'd get called out just for homicides. So cases that were pretty clear-cut homicides or cases where they suspected a homicide. So if I went out to the scene, typically it'd be cordoned off already by the police. There'd be a lot of police activity there. And then the medical examiner would be the one who came in underneath the line. First, you have to sign in so that they have a log of who comes in and who comes out of the scene. And you got to have your personal protective gear. You need to have gloves or booties with you, depending on the condition of the scene. Um, When we get there, the first thing we do is we get some basic information from the police officers at the scene about what happened, uh, how was the body found, were shots fired, what did people hear or see, what are witnesses telling you. And then we go over to the body. We don't move it until after it's been photographed. So a lot of time on the scene is basically typically spent waiting for the crime scene unit photographers to do their work, to document everything with photography and video. And then only after that will we move the body and take a look and assess the injuries and give the homicide detectives at the scene an idea of what we're seeing. Oh, these look like three gunshot wounds. I see three holes going. They look like entrances. I don't see any exits, so I'll probably recover the bullets tomorrow in the morgue, something like that. And so it gives them an idea about what we're seeing on the body and some leads about things that they can question witnesses about. How do you, if you have, how do you get used to going to a crime scene and and seeing what what humans can do to one another? All of medicine is a desensitization process. I remember the first time I came in and got introduced to my cadaver, (laughs) my first year of medical school, and I went, oh my God, that's a dead body. (laughs) Um, I mean, I knew I was going to be dissecting a cadaver. I knew that was part of medical school. I was always fascinated in human anatomy and how the body works. So 
there's always a gross out factor. And then you still find yourself getting drawn to it. And so you desensitize over the course of medical school. The first time you see a delivery, the first time you see an, um, an autopsy, the first time you do surgery and you see somebody's chest wide open with a heart beating, it's shocking. And yet you're trained sufficiently to do your job and you follow the lead of the people who are with you in terms of learning how to cope with the stresses of the job. I find that forensic pathology is actually less stressful than taking care of living patients. I've done both. <laughs> and when you're taking care of living patients, you've got the demands of the families of the people who are being treated. You've got the demands of the, of the patient themselves, which might be unreasonable demands. And they're in pain and they're suffering and they're not happy. And so I found that much more stressful and that it was harder for me to separate from that and forget about it when I got home than it is for me dealing with the horrible things I see on a daily basis because I know that they're no longer suffering. And they're out of their misery. Their soul is somewhere else. And the way I deal with it is I think that it's my job to make sense of this chaos and give some sort of closure to the family and answers to the legal system that can help repair the mess that a few seconds of impulsivity uh, created. Mm. Okay. You talked a little bit about doing your forensic pathology rotations while you were a resident. What is the the full postgraduate training look like to get to the point where you are now as a forensic pathologist? So there's a minimum. And then, of course, there's lots of other <laughs> options and bells and whistles that you can add on to your training. Um, the minimum is after you finish medical school, three years of anatomic pathology residency, and then one year of forensic pathology fellowship. So you can have a total of four years of postgraduate uh, training and then go and work at a medical examiner coroner's office and you're fine. Um, I did a little bit more than that because remember I did surgery first and then when I went to pathology, I didn't know I wanted to do forensics. So I actually did both anatomic and clinical pathology. So I did four years. Um, anatomic and clinical pathology combined make you more marketable for working in a hospital setting. Uh, clinical pathology involves laboratory medicine. So managing the laboratories of the hospital, the blood bank, the hematology lab, the toxicology lab, the microbiology lab. So learning how the tests work, the assays work, and how to supervise and manage the equipment and the technologists who work there is part of uh, CP or clinical pathology. So I did uh, four years of residency instead of the minimum three, and then I did two years of fellowship, uh, one in forensic pathology and one in forensic neuropathology, because they had a program at my uh, fellowship uh, uh, place at the New York City office, and I thought it was interesting. What is the neuropathology, what does that training do for you? So you can do neuropath typical neuropathology to work in a hospital setting where you're diagnosing tumors and doing surgical pathology is a two-year program where you spend one year examining brains and doing surgical pathology and one year doing research. Um, that's to, in order to be board certified. I, instead, I just did one year of examining brains in a forensic setting. So it's both brains and spinal cords that were taken out of the autopsy in cases where the death was sudden or violent. Sometimes they had gun shot wounds. Sometimes they had a history of seizure disorder. Sometimes they had no history whatsoever. And the pathologist out of prudence was uh, saving the brain and spinal cord for a more thorough analysis by a neuropathologist. So we would slice the brain, splice the spinal cords once they had been fixed, and then look at them under the microscope to make a diagnosis of things like Alzheimer's disease or uh, 
chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, which is that uh, injury that cause, that's caused by repeated concussions. These are the kind of things we'd be looking for. Okay. How competitive is it to become a forensic pathologist? It's not at all. It's, it's actually quite easy compared to other uh, specialties and especially subspecialties. Um, a lot of pathology programs don't fill I'm serious. This is really surprising to me because it's such a great job and it's so much fun. And especially now that I'm in, I'm hitting middle age, um, a lot of my friends and colleagues who have gone into other specialties, they're kind of hitting a little bit of burnout where they're tired of doing the same thing all the time. And I'm not tired at all. I could go into my nineties. <laughs> I, mean, I have colleagues who are in their, their early eighties and are still practicing because they love what they do. And it's so much fun. Every day that's something new. Every day it's challenging. What should a student be doing right now, whether a pre-med or a medical student, to, to start testing the waters to see if this is something they want or if they know it's what they want, what should they be doing to start becoming competitive, even though it's not competitive right this minute? Right. I think that the best thing that they can do is obviously do well on your pathology uh, coursework, histology and pathology coursework in first and second year of medical school. And then start talking to your teachers. If you're in first and second year of medical school, most of those teachers are in the pathology department at your hospital. So start talking to them, find out about doing rotations with them, see if you can shadow them, uh, go down to the surgical pathology uh, division and find out when they have their grand rounds or when they have their teaching uh, cases. Sometimes they have a uh, a conference that's for the residents where they sit around the microscope and they look at slides and they always have extra room for medical students. There really are not enough medical students who are interested in this field. So they get so excited when someone shows up and you can just sit at the microscope and listen in and look at the pretty pictures because that's how I think about it. If you get a little bit of dizzy looking at the microscope, which some people do, you just look away when they're moving the slide and you look back when they've got it fixed. <laughs> so that's the trick to that. Um, and then read, start reading about the subject. I, I do recommend doing a uh, rotation in your third and fourth year. It's going to have to be an elective. And if your office, um, your medical school is affiliated with a coroner medical examiner's office, I recommend also taking an elective at, at least one week at the local coroner medical examiner's office to see what they do. Even if you don't end up going into forensic pathology, let's say you're interested in internal medicine or you're interested in surgery, you'll still benefit from the experience, but it'll give you a perspective that nobody else has, and it'll help you understand how to prevent death in your patients, which is a really good thing. It, it, at the very least, it should help you fill out the uh, all the paperwork when a patient does die. Yes, yes. At the very least, you'll be able to write decent death certificates. <laughs> but I, I think I think that it's a wonderful experience. All the medical students I know who have gone through that rotation, even when they ended up going into psychiatry or dermatology or whatever, have really enjoyed the rotations. Um, the ones I experienced uh, rotated through the New York City office and also through the San Francisco office. Do you see any issues for osteopathic students interested in forensic pathology? Yes, there are plenty of opportunities. D, having a DO is not an impediment to getting uh, at all, either a residency or a fellowship in general pathology or in forensic pathology. I have several friends who are DOs okay. um, who have gone through the program. The only frustrating thing for them sometimes is keeping abreast of the osteopathic manipulation uh, requirements that are necessary for uh, licensure and continued certification. That's annoying because it's not something that they use every day, but they just take the courses and they do it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think manipulation is going to work very well during an autopsy. Right? It, yeah, it doesn't. It's not very good for for. <laughs> it's not really relevant, and I don't know if in time that will change. 
yeah. that they'll eliminate those requirements for subspecialties where it's not used. Yeah. What opportunities are there once you become a forensic pathologist to subspecialize in something else? Um, so you mean if you are a forensic pathologist and you want to do something, what, what do you mean by something like, else? To like further subspecialize. So you talked a little bit oh. about like neuro, neuropath, neuropath yeah. but are there any weird places that, that once you become a forensic pathologist, you can go even deeper and, and make that your life? There are. So there are people who are really interested in anthropology and continue to work in that field and then get masters of anthropologies or PhDs. There are people who uh, subspecialize in neuropathology and will work part-time at a hospital and part-time at a medical examiner or coroner's office and do neuropathology consult work. Um, there are people who do pediatric pathology. So that's a subspecialization that's also helpful. And cardiac pathology, where um, I have several colleagues who have uh, done cardiac pathology fellowships and then continued to work both in coroners or medical examiners, as well as doing research on sudden cardiac death. What specialties do you work the closest with? It's funny because I don't work directly with them, but I interact with them through medical records. <laughs> so when I get charts of people who have died, I'm pouring through those and I will sometimes call the primary care doctor for the deceased to get more information. So it tends to be a lot of psychiatrists uh, because of the uh, issues pertaining to substance abuse and suicidality in the cohort, the population that we see. I interact with geriatricians, especially when they don't write death certificates properly, and I have to educate them about how to properly code or write a death certificate that will be accepted by the Department of Public Health. Um, and then I interact with other pathologists, uh, consulting with them on our cases uh, and getting additional information about uh, unusual tumors I might see or things that are less common in our cohort. It does happen sometimes that I'll get some unusual disease process that I just don't see frequently enough to be able to diagnose right away. So that's where it's helpful to be affiliated or have relationships with hospital pathologists to help guide you. For the student that's interested, not in forensic pathology, but wants to go into geriatrics or be an internal mm -hmm. medicine doc, what can they do to make your job easier on the back end? Well, like I said, I think it would be helpful for them if they're still in medical school to schedule a rotation, an elective rotation, either in the pathology department or at the coroner's office or medical examiner's office where they work. I think it'll give them a better appreciation of who it is that's doing this job and why they do it and how they're trained. I think it will also teach them how to write proper death certificates so that it doesn't they don't run into trouble as they mature as practitioners. You mentioned a little bit earlier about how you do some consulting work. What other opportunities are there outside of clinical medicine uh, or uh, pathology, in, in your case, for, uh, for forensic pathologists? So the most lucrative and um, rewarding, in my opinion, is doing expert witness consult work where you get hired by either family members to do a second autopsy when they don't trust the first autopsy. Or if the coroner or medical examiner has declined to do the autopsy, they say it's not their jurisdiction. Family members will sometimes want an autopsy anyway, so you can do private autopsies in that setting. 
as for legal cases, I find that my consult work is a lot more challenging than my work for the coroner medical examiner with regards to the complexity of the cases. Typically, if something's going to court, it's because there's a dispute. There's something that people don't agree with. So I find it more challenging to try to review all the materials and come to some sort of consensus or opinion that can bring the sides together. I find that very rewarding. What do you wish you knew before you started your forensic pathology fellowship training? What do I wish I knew? I I wish I had known how political it could be because it it wouldn't have changed my opinion. I I wouldn't have changed my path. I still would have gone into the field, but I think I would have been a little bit more prepared for um, at least emotionally and mentally prepared for some of the challenges that the field uh, has, uh, particularly when it comes to things like officer-involved shootings or in-custody deaths, things that are high-profile when a celebrity dies. It's incredibly stressful to be the one that everybody's searching for answers and having the pressure of both the family and the uh, press or the media or your own supervisors trying to get you to come up with an answer quickly. And like I said, forensics is best done over time, meticulously and slowly, so that you can come up with a thorough answer that's defensible. If you rush it, and this is true, by the way, I mean, this is this piece of advice is true in all of medicine of, I, I, you know, granted, there are some circumstances like in surgery when someone's bleeding out where you have to work quickly. But the majority of cases in medicine, you do have some time. Okay, and if anybody is trying to rush you or do a stat on something that doesn't need that level of urgency, you should immediately put the brakes on and slow down because that's when you're going to screw up. And I think that that's a really important lesson to pass on to anyone, not just uh, pathologists, that it's important to take your time and do a thorough job because otherwise you're going to miss something if you're stressed and under pressure, especially outside pressure. Speaking more to the what you were talking about in the beginning about the political side of things, is there any specific training that you know of that students can get now before they enter the the field to understand it a little bit more? Most of the training comes on the job itself. I, I think that having a good fellowship program and having good mentors who are willing to teach you about it, especially if you go to a good urban area as opposed to a suburban area, um, you will you'll get exposure. (laughs) It's inevitable. That is when you work in an urban area, there's going to be high profile cases. There's going to be stuff in the press and you're going to have to learn from your colleagues and the staff that you work with on how to manage it. I do think that it is worthwhile later in your training, once you've already become a forensic pathologist to take some time to do media training, learn how to work with media professionals to answer questions in an interview setting, give sound bites to the press, interact with the press so that you get your message across. I think that that media training is something that you're not going to get in medical school, you're not going to get it on the job, and it's something that you essentially have to seek out and pay for yourself. And I did it a few years ago when uh, the book Working Stiff came out. Uh, I I didn't mention I co-authored a book with my husband, T.J. Mitchell, about my forensic training called Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies, and the Making of a Medical Examiner. And when a book comes out, there's publicity. So you have to learn how to interview and how to talk to the press. The training that I did for the book publicity has reaped its, I've reaped those rewards as a forensic pathologist as well, because it has taught me how to interact with the press in high profile cases. Yeah. I want to talk about the book a little bit more. 
in in a minute. Finishing up talking about forensic pathology, what do you like the most about being a forensic pathologist? I think the thing I like the most is the excitement and unpredictability of it and the fact that I'm here to serve anyone. When I walk into the morgue in the morning and I get that list of cases, it could be someone who's very wealthy. It could be someone who's very poor. It could be a really famous person. It could be someone who's completely unknown. I, it's like a box of chocolates. You're never going to, you never know what you're going to get. And death is like that as well as life. You, you don't know what you're getting in the morning and you just have to learn how to roll with the punches and, um, and deal with it in the best way you can. That said, it's incredibly rewarding to be able to help family members. I, I like having the patient contact. And with the patient contact, I mean not the deceased individual, but their family members are, the pa- are my patients too. And they're the ones that I have to help with grieving, with closure, with understanding the process. Sometimes they're upset that you know we don't have the results right away and it's taking so long. And just being able to talk to them and explain to them what the process is, uh, what the laboratory does, what my role is, and why it takes so long is also part of my job. So I, I find that really rewarding as well. On the flip side, what do you like the least? Um, what do I like the least? You know, I, I think that what I like the least is true of any job. It's dealing with nasty people. You know, just like any specialty, sometimes you have to interact with um people who are under stress, people who are ornery, micromanaging supervisors, things like that. And that can be frustrating in any job environment. I don't think it's, it's specifically, you know, it's the tedium of the routine and of the um, hierarchy that I'm in. Um, I currently work at a sheriff coroner's office. So some of my immediate supervisors are not physicians. They don't understand medicine. So it can be frustrating sometimes explaining to them what I do and why what I do is important and getting the financial or um, uh, time support that I need from them. So that can be frustrating. Now, with TV out there, if if a student has watched Bones before, which has recently <laughs> ended, the technology that they have at their fingertips is phenomenal. Do you see any major changes, whether it's technology or just how things are are practiced coming to the field of forensic pathology? I have seen changes just in my career so far in the past 15 years. I've seen the advent of uh, CT scans with uh, 3D imaging coming into the forefront, becoming more common, not just in the hospital setting, but also in the medical examiner setting. I've seen uh, genetic testing uh, advance tremendously. So now we have access to genetic tests for uh, sudden cardiac uh, death genes, things that uh, can predispose someone to what are called channelopathies or or, um, risk factors for sudden cardiac death that we can then communicate to families. I've seen uh, changes in histopathology in terms of the quality of the slides that we're getting, the scanning capacity, uh, digital uh, forensics, being able to share information digitally has been very helpful. Uh, the basic technique is going to be the same. You're still going to have to cut at a dead body. <laughs> You're still going to need your scalpel. You're still going to need your um, scissors. Uh, there is virtual autopsies out there that people use CT scans or MRIs to diagnose certain diseases. But ultimately, autopsy is the gold standard, and you can't use a virtual autopsy 
to diagnose an infectious disease. You still need to take a sample from the body and grow it in a laboratory, or you do need uh, microscopic sections of the heart uh, to diagnose uh, a, con- a cardiac conduction defect. So there, the, the radiology is good to a certain degree, but ultimately autopsy is the gold standard and still relied upon in most court settings. I think I know the answer, but if you were to do it all over again, would you still choose forensic pathology? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would have skipped surgery entirely and gone <laughs> straight into this field. But, you know, that, that experience, sometimes you have to have a bad experience in order to appreciate what you have. And I, I do want to have a message out there for medical students who are listening. Uh, you know, I when I was in medical school, I got the impression, I don't know if anybody specifically told me this, but I definitely got the impression that once you choose your specialty, that's it. And if you fail out of your residency or if you hate your residency, you're stuck. You're not going to find another residency. It's going to be very difficult for you to switch. Um, That is utter horse hockey. About a third of doctors switch their specialties at some point in their career. Some people do it during residency. Some people do it after they finish residency and then they do a separate residency. Some people do it halfway through a career and then decide, I'm bored of being an ENT. I want to be an oncologist. And they, you know, in their 50s, they go back to residency. So just be aware that switching is possible. You're not a loser if you hate your residency or you're miserable. There are other options. Sometimes places will take you outside of the match. Other times you can go through the match again and you will find a position that fits. Sometimes it's also not the career, it's the job that you might be in uh, the right career for you, which is the right specialty, but you just happen to be in a bad residency program or a bad job environment with a bad supervisor, and sometimes switching jobs is the solution. But there are options out there, and don't feel like you're um, not going to be able to find a position in medicine because you weren't happy where you were currently. So let's talk about your book, Working Stiff. Sure. Why did you write a book about your training When I was in medical school, I had a professor who encouraged us to write a journal, keep a journal, while we were in medical school to document our transition from lay people, (laughs) non-medical people, to medical people, how we learn the terminology, how we become doctors. And I thought, that's been done before, and I don't have time for this. (laughs) Um, uh, Perry Class did a great job. She wrote A Not Entirely Benign Procedure, which is, uh, you know, it's old, but it's a book about her training through Harvard Medical School. And I read it when I was in college, and I loved it. So I didn't feel inspired to do that. But then when I decided to do forensic pathology and I was starting my fellowship, I thought all of these television shows, CSI and Bones, are just so inaccurate. And nobody knows about the forensic training process that I'm going to be going through in the next year. I'm going to write about that. So that's when I started writing my journal. And every day when I went into work, I had an hour commute on the train going in and then an hour going back. So that's two hours a day that I could write. I had a handheld device where I kept a journal. And then I, at the end of the two years of my fellowships, I had a baby and restructured (laughs) the journal by cases. Because, you know, when you do a case, you might do an autopsy one day, but not get the toxicology until a month later and not get called to court till a year later. So I had to take it out of chronological order to create the case-based narrative, which Working Stiff is made out of. And then I was working, so I handed it to my husband, uh, T.J. Mitchell. He is was an English major at college, and he had been working as a writer uh, for other people, uh, primarily in Hollywood as a screenwriter's assistant. And so I said, you're, you're the English major here. Do something with this. And we sat on it for about 10 years as our kids were getting older and going to school. He was a stay-at-home dad, so he was busy taking care of them. 
And then finally, I think it was the 10 year anniversary of 9-11 that really changed things for us. Uh, then it was no longer personal history. It was what, what I had experienced was history because I happened to be one of the 30 forensic pathologists in New York City at the time of the World Trade Center uh, uh, terrorism incident. And I was the rookie. I was the least experienced member of the team. I had arrived in July and I had two months of training before September 11th happened. So that was a big part of my diary as well. And, and tackling those chapter that the, those chapters were the, probably the most difficult. But, but I didn't want to write a book that was specifically about 9-11. I wanted to write something that would encourage students and experts in different fields to understand what it is that we do and what the training process is like, how we learn. So that was the impetus for it. And, um, and I'm so grateful that I had TJ to help. And we worked, we really, it really is a 50-50 thing. We worked on it together. We emailed the chapters back and forth as we revised it. And now we're actually working on uh, detective fiction. So we're transitioning to an, a novel that we're working on. That's so it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's developed a new aspect of my career now is in addition to working for the Alameda County Sheriff Coroner's office and doing my consult work, I also uh, assist him in the writing, but he's, he's the primary writer and I'm more, there is a consultant for the novel. <laughs> you always wonder some of these shows, but do they have a consultant on the show working? <laughs> they do. I've actually consulted on some of them in the past. I consulted yeah. on ER and the problem is, is that they have to take a certain artistic license in order to move the plot along. I mean, that's the bottom line. So yeah. they do have consultants, but they don't always listen to them. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea, but that's going to cost too much money. Right. Or or the, I, I can't change the script right now at the last minute, so we're going to have to <laughs> gloss over that fact. Awesome. Well, doc, Dr. Melanick, any last words of wisdom for a student, whether pre-med or, or a medical student who maybe is is just hearing about forensic pathology for the first time or maybe has known that they want to become a forensic pathologist what what would you say to him or her to keep them motivated to to seek out this as a career sure i really recommend that you actually just google the phrase or if you could put a link to it on the post for so you want to be a forensic pathologist <laughs> question mark if you just google that phrase you'll find my website i have a um a website which is pathologyexpert.com and then link to that is my blog and i have a separate entry that's specifically addressed to students at different levels of their training. So there's what to do if you're in high school, what to do if you're in college, what to do if you're in medical school, <laughs> what to do if you're in residency. And just there's a paragraph each about what the next steps are and what you should look for. Uh, that That's probably the best advice I can give you because it's thorough and it's uh, directed toward students at different levels of their training if they're interested in pursuing this field. All right, there you have it, Dr. Judy Melanick, talking about forensic pathology. Now, if you're a fan of Bones and CSI and and all of those other shows out there that seem to highlight and glorify the forensic pathology world, go check out Working Stiff from Dr. Judy Melanick in your, at your favorite bookstore. And if you are interested in pathology and specifically forensic pathology, go check out all of the links that Judy mentioned. They are in our show notes page in the specialty stories session number 24 blog post i hope you have a great week come check us out next week as we tackle another specialty